Fantastic. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. If you're there, 9 a.m. service, say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. That one verse could preach, couldn't it? That'll preach. But uh, as Rich Wilkerson Jr. said during conference, has now become an iconic statement. But verse 41, then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a daughter of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why he, she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, would you mind coming over with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew? And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16 and start reading in verse 13. When you get there, say, yep. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. One more verse and it's Romans chapter 9. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says uh, in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart you will, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth you confess and are saved. Most of my ministry life, I've always been the young pastor. Always been the guy that's just a little bit younger than the average crowd. When we started Arise Church, I was actually only 29 years old for the first five or six months of Arise Church. And I must be one of the few people on earth excited about turning 30. Because for me, as a young senior pastor, it seems so much more polite, so much more kind of, you know, authentic, so much like you are qualified for the job. When someone said to you, how old are you? And you got to say, I am 30. 
I'll never forget when I was a young pastor. You know, we'd, we'd go to all these senior pastors' events. In fact, just even a few years ago, we were on our church tour and we we're traveling around. I think we did five centers this particular year and we we're traveling around doing our church tour and we got to Taupo. And I'll never forget being in the foyer of the service before, before the night began. And I'm talking to this old man who was an elder in some kind of church. And when I say old, he was at least 60. And we're, we're having this chat together and talking about, you know, life and God and everything. And I think he thought that I was part of the setup and pack down team that were kind of traveling around to help everybody. And finally, it got to the point in our conversation where he said to me, who's preaching tonight? And I said, I am. He said, you're kind of young to be a pastor, aren't you? Kind of young to be the guy sharing with us this evening. I said, sir, thank you. I'm old enough that that's now a compliment for me. I remember when I was really young, you know, as a youth pastor, and we, we'd, we'd have to go to all these kind of pastors' gatherings, and we'd turn up to these pastors' gatherings, and everybody would be there. And, you know, we used to call pastors' gatherings when I was a youth pastor. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a bit irreverent, but we used to call the pastors' gatherings the Grey Power Club. And, and we'd, turn up, we'd turn up to these events with, with all of these pastor men. And, and, and often, as my pastor's youth pastor, he would make me stand on the front row because he would be speaking at these events, and I would be like, his catcher. I would be the guy who kind of, you know, he would pray for people. I'd have to catch them and lay them on the ground, unless they were really big, and then I'd let somebody else do it, because you've got to be smart to survive in ministry. And, and so, you know, we'd be going through this process. I remember one time, standing there in the middle of this meeting, I had my hands lifted in worship, and one of my other youth pastor friends, who I won't give you his name, because he's preached in Arise Church, but we were both youth pastors at the time, but he arrived late at the meeting. I'm standing down the front. I've got my hands lifted in worship. I'm ready to encounter Jesus. It's going to be this life-changing moment when my friend arrives. And we will always be naughty at the Great Power Club. We'd always be just a little bit kind of just push the boundaries. You know, we were never rebellious, but we were always trying to just push the envelope just a little bit. We, we encourage this with our staff. Sometimes it, sometimes it crosses the line and I have to kind of draw it again in the sand. But we like a little bit of naughty here at Rice Church. And, and so I'm standing in the front. I've got my hands lifted in worship. And along comes my friend with his briefcase in his hands. He's going to sit in the seat right next to me. But as he went to sit in his seat, he put his briefcase kind of out, meaning to connect with my stomach, but aimed just a little bit low with his briefcase. As I'm standing there with my my hands lifted in worship, <laughs> along comes this briefcase and hits me where a man should never be hit. I fell to the ground in absolute agony. I mean, I mean, I mean as, it's unpolite, but I'm in absolute agony. The corner of the briefcase has collected me where you should never be collected as a man. I'm lying on the ground. I am groaning. It's got nothing to do with God. But as I'm there, kind of trying to recover from this incredibly painful moment, along come about three or four pastors to pray for me. I think they're praying for healing. And next thing I know, they're saying, more, Lord. Give him more, Lord. More? I don't want more. What are you talking about? 
I was either the kid too young or the kid kind of left out. I remember one time we're driving down the street and it was my senior pastor and another pastor who was already in his late 60s. He had a church and my pastor pastored a church about 500 people. I was his youth pastor. This other guy pastored a church in a more kind of provincial part of New Zealand. And he had a church of maybe 100 people. And we're driving down the street together and my pastor and him are talking about Hillsong Church, which at that time, must have had several thousand people in it. It's still only really in its infancy at this stage, but it already broken through so many barriers. And they're talking about the success of Hillsong Church. And as they're talking, my pastor says to this other pastor, he says, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you break through so many barriers. I guess some people just have a special grace. And as he's talking about it, I'm sitting in the back seat and with, I guess, the blind confidence that only a young man ever has, I sat in the back seat and I said, I believe God's called me and I'm going to build a church of over 10,000 people. In the front seat, you can hear kind of the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the older pastor who was actually the one driving this particular day just immediately began to kind of mock me like, oh, come on, Cameron, what, what are you talking about? What do you think? You're the youth pastor. You know, he's trying to kind of just give me a bit of a hard time about it. My senior pastor is incredibly quiet. And then he just eventually he just says, I believe you will. I'll never forget that moment though, because in my life, in my ministry, there have been for many years this thing building on the inside of me. I felt God had spoken to me. I've always kind of had this attitude that as Christians, we shouldn't live with a lid. If you've ever been in the foyer of one of our church services and you give me your phone number, you'll notice that I never write down your phone number as 021. I don't think like that. I always think plus six four. Two, one, and then the number. Because I don't want to be limited in my thinking to just that I'm, I'm only ever going to be in New Zealand. I want to be able to call you no matter where I am in the world. Whenever someone says to me at the airport, you fill out the form and it says, where do you live? I always put my suburb. And then even though I don't technically live in the city of Wellington, I always put Wellington. Because I don't want to think small. I don't want to think limited to just a small geographical. I want, I want to think out of the bigness of God. And I'll never forget that moment because it was the first time in my life that I had testified of the fact that in my heart I felt God had called me and that I was going to build a church that would break through a whole lot of boundaries. See, there's something about it, something about that moment in your life, something about when God has done something in your heart and you say it out loud, and you give voice to what you know in your spirit. There's something about it that makes something intangible alive in that moment. There's something about it that gives it life. It's, it's the moment that you testify. See, in Romans chapter 10, we read from it this morning, but you've got to understand that salvation, in fact, everything of God is a double-edged sword because the Bible says that if you confess with your and believe in your, you will be saved. So it's not just something that happens in your heart, and it's not just something that happens with your mouth, but it's about something that's happening with your mouth and something that's happening, and when the two combine together, that something shifts in your life. 
I love chapter nine, chapter 10 and verse 10 because it says, because it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved and with the heart that you believe and it, it turns it around and it puts the mouth first and the heart second. Because it's one thing to have an experience that touches your heart. What happens at a conference, a moment, is you touch God, don't you? And you receive something from Him. But it confounds your intellect. It defies the very realm of possibility. The reason why I love these three standing up here when, when Vas and Donna and Lawrence take this stage and they begin to share out of what God's done. What I love about it is that it takes something personal and it takes something private and it takes something subjective and you put it out from your mouth and the moment you put it out from it changes because now it's not just something internal that you kind of feel, but it's something that you speak out of your mouth and it shapes. See, what happens is if our Christianity is only ever in our heart, if it's never given voice from our lives, how many people know that it's never going to really have a... See, what happens is that when God touches you or speaks to you or changes you, it happens on the inside of you. And that shapes the way that you feel on the inside. But the Bible tells us in Genesis that God spoke and there was light. That He, he sent out His Word and it performed it, that he said, he said, let there be let there be living creatures that will fill the waters. And when he said it, that's exactly what happened. And my friends, you need to understand that when you speak it out, you give it life. You give it, you shape your world by the words that you speak. So the Bible tells us that when faith comes to your life, it's not just something about something that happens that is intangible on the inside of you. But when you speak it out, you are declaring something into the environment that shapes the fabric of your life. See, when a guy meets a girl, how many people know it changes him? When he meets that girl, he becomes different. When he, when he, when he falls for a girl, Cameron boys are famous for not falling often, but when they fall, falling hard. I remember when I met Jillian, you know, I was 20-something years old. I can't remember now. I married her just after she turned 20 years old, got engaged when we were 19, because if you train a child on the way she should go when she's old, she won't depart from it. So, you know, so we got married so young. But um, I'll never forget... I'll never forget when I fell in love with Jillian. I mean, you know, if you know much about me, I mean, I don't cook. I don't do anything creative, really. I mean, I don't really, I don't have an artsy side. People tell me to draw. I'm like, why? Uh, even cooking for me is like the greatest frustration in all the world. If God wanted me to cook, he wouldn't have invented McDonald's. You know what I mean? It just, it's just not something that I really connect with and but here I am, I'm, I'm in love with Jillian. All I can think about is her. Well, I mean, I'm writing poems. I, I'd send her poems in the mail. I, I wrote her a song. I wrote her the song on Piha Beach. I sang it to her. I, I read a poem out at our wedding. I'm embarrassed even saying it out loud to you. But I did, it was our wedding service and I, because I was head over heels in love. I, I'll never forget it. You know, just crazy moments, just Things that you do when you're in love. People say to me, how's your day been? Good. I, I, you know, I've been, I've been with Jillian. You know, you, you, is life going well? Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about Jillian. you got hopes in oh, Jillian. You know, do you like that car? Jillian would like it. I mean, it's everything. 
You didn't have to force me to talk about it. You didn't have to work me up to get me to, to, to say it out loud. It just came from me because, because I was in love with Jillian. Because when something changes on the inside, it's only natural that it comes out from the outside. When we counsel new believers in the church, you know, when we take people out to the back or whatever, or someone comes up to someone after service who's just found Jesus Christ in their life, we train our, our leaders in the church to start by saying, what made you lift your hand? Why did you come forward in the service today? Because we want to know what's going on in the heart of a person. And when they say it out loud, it gives voice. See, when God moves in your life, if you live Leave it just in the realm of your heart. It doesn't have the lasting impact that God wants it to have because it's not just about something that happens in you. It's about what you speak forth from you. So in our lives, we have to remember that God is looking not only for us to be shaped by Him internally, but for us to speak out of what He has done and give testimony to the goodness of God. Because as we begin to speak out what God has done, it shapes us, it changes us, it augments what He has done. It, it clarifies our position. It gives life to our future. God is wanting us to testify. This woman with the issue of blood is an amazing passage of Scripture because the Bible says that Jesus is heading down the road one day because a man by the name of Jairus wants healing for his sick daughter. And so Jesus is walking down the street with Jairus. It's an amazing passage because the Bible says that so many people are walking down this road and they're curious about Jesus. They're wanting to know more about Jesus and so many people that they threaten to crush Him. Ever been in a moment like that? When you're crushed in and pressed in all around, when everything is tight, I hate those moments, and everything is, and Jesus is walking down the street. He's like getting banged, and you know, he's got his boys probably all around him. They're probably like his security guards. Hopefully they had little earpieces, you know, black ties, black suits. They're talking into their wristwatches. You know, hopefully it was like that. Jesus is cruising down the street. He's got all the disciples around him. There's such a crowd thronging him. He's making his way down the road. When the Bible says that this one woman, this one woman has had a problem in her, her life for 12 long years. 12 years with the same problem. 12 years trying to get well. 12 years looking for a solution. 12 years, that's a long time. 12 years she's been believing for a miracle. 12 years she's been going through the situation in her life. But the Bible tells us that she comes up behind Jesus and she reaches, she reached with intention. That's a very powerful thing. When so many people are crushing Jesus, I'm sure that there was a myriad of challenges that every single one of them faced. Somebody's grieving for a lost one. Somebody's got a problem. Somebody's got a, a struggle with fear. Somebody's got a challenge. But none of them were reaching with intent. That's why, that's why it's so important to realize that coming to church won't in and of itself change your life. Even coming to a Rise conference won't in and of itself change your life. You have to not only be the crowd that are pressing, but the woman who is reaching. This woman reached with intention. She had a purposeful attitude. It's, it's very easy to come to the city of sights, but not connect with the giver of sight. Here is this woman and she comes to Jesus and she crawls up behind him. 
doesn't want anybody to know she's there. She's afraid. She feels unworthy. She feels this kind of, you know, sense in her life, like, what am I even doing here? Why, why am I? But I just, I just got to give this a try. I, I just know that Jesus can bring the change. I just sense. It seems crazy. It's, oh, it seems crazy, doesn't it? But I, I'm just going to give it a go. That's always what it's like when you meet with Jesus. Every time your mind goes at war with your spirit because you know that if you lift up your hands in worship, you, you know that if you choose to admit that Jesus is alive, that a supernatural reality can come to your life. This woman knew that if she reached out and touched Jesus, that healing was gonna, but her mind is screaming. 12 years, every doctor, every physician, every prayer line in the world and nothing and so she's saying to herself, this is a whole, her mind is saying, it's a waste of time. It's not worth it. And it always feels like that. It always feels like you shouldn't give genuineness to your reach towards God. It always feels like it's a waste of time to, to, to give God your very, you always feel the sense of a war going on in your life. Even coming out of conference. It's easy to have made a moment made a decision in a moment when your life is in fever pitch. And for 10 minutes, we're just singing from my heart to the heavens. But rather than watching your wristwatch, you just kind of lost in that presence of Jesus. And you're feeling the authenticity of God's touch. And then the very next day, you come out from it. And your mind is saying, why did you say that you were gonna give God the first of your time? Why did you say you were gonna be an addicted to Jesus? Why did, you, why did you feel that? And our mind goes to war with our spirit. This woman reaches out to Jesus and the Bible says that she put to, to quiet. She, she would not listen to the voice that said, do not reach out. She reached out, she touches Jesus. And the moment that she touches Jesus, healing comes to her body. And Jesus, this Jesus who is being crowded and pressed and everybody is standing around him. The Bible says that he's just walking down, getting bumped, security guards looking at their, their, their wristwatches, you know, listening to, all trying to check it out as he's got snipers on the roof, just kidding. As, as they're walking down the street, the Bible says Jesus stops in his tracks. He turns around. The woman is gone. She retreats back into the crowd. She's invisible again. And as she reaches back, Jesus looks and he says, just kind of into the ether, who touched me? The disciples are like, are you kidding? What do you mean who touched you? You're asking us a question. Have you, have you not looked around you, Jesus? Have you not seen the bruises we've got as we're taking body blows for you here? Have, have you not seen how many people are coming at you from every different direction? And you're asking, who like if you read it carefully, you'll notice that Jesus speaks, there's a pause. Peter speaks, there's another pause. See, there's, there's something that happens in your life when you have a moment with God. This woman reaches out and she touches Jesus. And immediately when she touched Jesus, she felt that something had changed in her life. 
felt the sense, I'm not the same now. I've changed now. I've met with God now. My life is different now. I'm not the same now. That problem is gone. But how do you know? That's a great question. I mean, I'm sure if you've bled for 12 years, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I'm sure that if you were hemorrhaging, if you'd burst an artery and you were bleeding for 12, you wouldn't last 12 years, you'd be dead. There were no blood transfusions. This woman's problem is not a problem that was kind of just such a constant issue. You could just see the blood just kind of coming down off her body. This was a problem that had just nagged away, sat there, eaten taking her peace, taking her joy, taking her life. Ever felt like that? Like there's just something lingering in the background. And, and we come to Jesus and in our heart, we're believing that one touch from God could bring this change. But how many people know there's another part of you that's saying, I just, I just, I just, we reach out and we touch him. But the moment we touch him, we're thinking, I know I've been changed by him. Somebody went to conference last weekend and reached out and touched God and something you were believing for in your life, it happened. But this woman, she's got the touch of God in her life, but she's also there saying to herself, is this real? Is this really happening? Do I even deserve to touch Jesus? Am I clean enough to touch Jesus? How many people are grateful for a God who doesn't ask you to get cleaned up before you take a bath? Doesn't matter what you're struggling with, what sin issue you have, what, what dark night you've been through, how unworthy you feel, that you can come to Him in spite of our, He is the one who makes you clean. This woman is saying to herself, I, I just don't know. She's disappeared back into the crowd. Notice what is present in her life is fear. Jesus is standing there and he allows this silence. I, I haven't in recent years been involved in too much pastoral counseling, but I've done enough to know a bit. My, my senior pastor was a very good counselor and so I learned a lot from him. I, I wouldn't say I'm the best at it, you know, but I wouldn't say I'm the worst either. I, I'm just kind of, I give myself a pass. But if there's one thing that I know about pastoral counseling, it is that you have to be comfortable with silence. Because the bigger the issue, the more personal it is. The more it touches at your identity, the more it eats away at your perception of yourself the more it's kind of just so much a central thing, the harder it is to put it out there. So as a counselor, you have to be, I'm a pastoral counselor, by the way, just making a note there. But as a, as a counselor, you have to be willing to just sit there, put the question out, and leave the silence in the room. This is an amazing moment, because if you read the story carefully, you'll notice that Jesus asks a question. Then he waits. You read this and you think, what is, what is Jesus doing? I mean, this woman, this woman should never go near a religious man. 
This woman was not worthy. When, you, when a woman was unclean, when a woman had bleeding in her body, she wasn't even allowed to go to the temple according to the law of her time. This is a woman who should never have even been in the proximity of a rabbi, a religious leader, let alone touch the hem of his garment. This was a, a sacred part of a religious man's clothing. And she reached out and touched him. And, and here's Jesus. How many people know that our Jesus does never embarrass people? He never, he never puts people on display. He, he never singles us out to make us look bad. This is what counts, what stops thousands, hundreds, millions of people from ever dealing with real issues in their life is that they think that Jesus wants to put their failures on display, not knowing that he puts Satan on display. And he triumphed in it. And said, now the defeat of Satan is what I want to put on display. I want to make your record clean. I want to change your life. I want to free your heart. I want to take your sin away from you. And I want to put that on display. I want the world to know. This woman is, she's in the, she's in the background. Jesus asks the question. He waits in response. The woman, the Bible says, realizes that she cannot go unnoticed. In other words, no one's fessing up. No one else is coming forward. And so the Bible says that out of the crowd all around Jesus, this must be like a little thing, thousands of people, and this woman just crawls out and she is trembling in fear. See, whenever you have fear, Whenever you have questions, whenever you have isolation, those three things in tandem, if you wanted to create an incubator environment, an ideal breeding environment for unbelief, just take a little bit of fear, take a few questions, take some isolation, and right there, it's like unbelief will grow in this kind of environment. We've got the right soil, the right fertilizer. We, we've, got, we've got the ideal climate. The sun is, this is what unbelief needs to fester and grow, which is why the Bible doesn't say, if you just believe in your heart. This woman is in her shame. She's hiding in the background. Jesus always loved her. Never, never interacted with her life for her shame or for her own detriment. Every page, every dealing, every moment is to give her life. She comes out of the shadows, trembling. See, fear and faith cannot live in your life at the same time. They are, they are opposing substances. You will be filled with faith or you'll be filled with fear, but never both at the same time. They are at odds, at war with one another. One will dominate the other and there will be victory and there will be defeat. And Jesus says, if the miracle is private, but it's never made public, then your fears will grow. Then your anxiety will consume you. Then your, your, your doubts will rage. And he says, I'm not giving the devil a moment in your life. So he brings the woman forward and the woman says out loud what had happened privately. See, what would flourish in the dark dies in the light. 
And Jesus says, no unbelief will consume you. No, no doubt will rob you. This miracle has touched you. Don't just say it privately. I want you to say it publicly. I've changed your life. I've healed your body. You are never gonna be the same again. This moment is for you. This moment is real in your life. This is your breakthrough. This is your hour. Come out of the shadows. Get out of your shame. It's time to testify. See, see, my friends, what's happening is Jesus is liberating this woman's life. He's saying, no longer will this be something that happens for you in private. You've got to put it out there. See, when I gave it voice, when I said, God's called me to build a church of 10,000 people, it wasn't arrogance. It's faith. When you begin to speak out what God's done in your life over conference, it's not because you've got a pride-filled heart. It's not because it's just for other people. It's for you. When you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. See, the word, the word it says, when you believe in your heart, you are justified. In other words, positionally, in the eyes of God, who is the one who justifies you? That's God, right? So God justifies. When you believe in your heart, you're justified. But when it says you confess with your mouth, you are saved. That word literally means to be delivered or to be bought out of or to be set free from. And when you take your testimony and you begin to speak it over what God's done in your life, it brings you out. It breaks the chains. It delivers you from your prison. God's already healed you. Now it's time to declare your own healing to the world. It's time to make it public. God wants to set you free. See, what an amazing moment it must have been for the disciples. Something's been building within them. Know what that feels like? Sense of calling. Sense of destiny a reality of something that is bigger than what you're in right now. Somebody in this room knows what it must have felt like for the disciples when it begins to dawn on them. They're lying awake at night going, my Lord, we just fed 5,000 people. Can you imagine that? We just fed 5,000 people with that kid's fillet of fish combo. This is unbelievable. The next night, did you see Lazarus? The first mummy inspired every horror story. Did you watch him come out of that tomb? Did you see that? The next night they're going, he spat in that guy's eyes. That's weird. But then he put his hands in him, the, the spit in his eyes, the lurgy. But then he said, be open. And that guy could see and he'd been blind since birth. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them as something began to grow on the inside of them? God's called them. This is not an ordinary person. This is not even just a prophet. Surely, this is the one that we've been waiting for. But nobody said it. See, you know what it's like in your life when you come to a conference moment and you begin to feel that sense, God's gonna save my family, changes come into my life, I'm not gonna live in this prison anymore. Man, I might've struggled with that problem. I'm, I might've been smoking my whole life, but that chain's broken. You, you might've been feeling like, well, I've, I've gotta go higher. God's put his hand upon my life. I'm gonna contribute to the kingdom. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. That problem is no longer my problem. God set me free. He did a healing work. 
But Jesus knew that it couldn't activate a change in their life unless it was. So one day, the disciples are there with Jesus. He says, who do people say that I am? Again, awkward, silent moment. Uh, I know who I think you are. What did God do in your life at conference? Well, my kids got blessed. I saw this girl really get set free. Well, some say, some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Jesus goes, all right, you're still not, you're still not going there. Let's go there. Now, hang on a minute. Let me ask you it a second time. What about you? Was Jesus trying to embarrass his disciples? When God asks for your testimony, is it ever because he wants to do you harm? What about you, he says? Simon, all of them, all of them. His heart is beating out of his chest and Simon looks up, Simon Peter, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the, can you imagine what those words must have been like? About a carpenter's kid with a questionable upbringing. As he stands there and says, man, this is not a carpenter's son. This is not a disqualified religious zealot. This is the son of the most high God. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. He came to redeem my soul. He's here to change my life. He's here to set me free. As the words come out of his mouth, it wasn't for Jesus that he said those words. It was for Simon. See, when God says what's happened in your life, what's real for you, what have I done in you? It's not because He wants it for Him. He wants it for you. He wants to break some chains. He wants to bring you out. He wants your healing to endure. He wants the next level in your life to be permanent. He wants to bring you forward. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the Most High God. He said, now you are blessed. He says, we come out of this conference moment. You've got to testify. You've got to. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. Not just conference. I mean, we're preaching this in a context, but this is a principle for your life. You have to share out of what God said to you. When, when Arise was just beginning, I've got one more story and then I'll close. We needed to raise money, you know, to keep this thing going. And so we, we took our first ever miracle offering. I think we were believing from memory, I could be wrong, but I believe the figure was $16,000. It was out there. The church of 100 people, maybe less. And we're saying, we're going to raise 16 grand. Remember, Jeff? And we're like, this is just stupid. What, what are we thinking? I'd, I'd, I'd raise that money for events, but never from, you know, a hundred odd people. I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is crazy. But we raised it. We rocked it. I think we had like nearly twice that that came in. It was amazing. 
But then a few years later, and if you know anything about works of God, what you need to make it happen goes up and up and up and up and up. And it gets to the point where we need to raise, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. And I'm thinking, what do I do now? Because I knew that God had placed this vision in the heart of our church. But to speak it out, well, that means that you're asking people to invest in something that hasn't happened yet. That's hard. And I was running home from work one day, filled with a heart that was believing, but a mouth that was closed. Fear, questions, and until you say it out loud, isolation. You find no partners in your miracle while your mouth is closed. And God spoke in my heart when I was running just up the Tinnacori Road. God spoke in my heart and He said, John, I will not let your words fall to the ground. And church, the thing is, if we're going to get what God wants us for us from life, you have to be willing to testify. Something's got to get out there. Something's got to move. Something's got to shift. God wants your mouth filled with some new words. Because when you testify, something's going to change. When you close your eyes all over this room. There's somebody who spent the last week really believing for something from God that's happened for you at conference to last. You have to testify. You have to share what God's done. You have to take what He's done in your life and put it out there to others. Somebody's believing for some kind of change in their next tomorrow. You've got to testify. Don't let the miracle stay inside you. You have to give it voice, give it words.